Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory, Glory to, to you, Lord Christ. Christ. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. everyone. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do pray that your word, which is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, that it might be hidden deeply within our hearts. That we might know you, love you, and follow you all the days of our lives. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before my staff does anything awkward, let me be the first to acknowledge that yes, today is my birthday and I am 48 years old, which means I've lived longer than Elvis, John F. Kennedy, and John Lennon whom all seemed so very old to me when I was growing up. And Alyssa asked me what I wanted for my birthday, and I said, not much, just $30 million. And so I went and bought a Powerball ticket. I thought, maybe, we've been praying. Actually, I didn't do that. I don't even know how to do that. But today is Pledge Sunday in our capital campaign. You might have expected me to preach on money and giving, but no, because today we come in our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer to the only part of the prayer that Jesus repeats. In verse 12, he directs us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then in verses 14 and 15, he circles back to forgiveness and connects God's forgiveness of us with our forgiveness of others. And we have to ask the question, why? Why does he repeat this part? Well, 
Maybe it's because everything else in the prayer depends upon it. And maybe that's what is expected to first and foremost flow from our lives if we claim Christ's Father as ours. And maybe if we give anything else up before or beyond or besides forgiveness, without forgiveness, it simply doesn't matter. And that also inevitably, if we do begin to give forgiveness to others, so much more beyond it will begin to flow from our lives as well. And so how can we forgive? Two points this morning, nature, our nature and God's, and then also God's expectation. So first of all, nature, specifically our human nature in contrast to God's. In Matthew 18, there's this parable here. It's an excellent commentary on what Jesus has said about forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer. And the context of this parable is Peter coming to Jesus and asking a question, Lord, how Many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him seven times. And Peter here thinks he's being magnanimous because in Amos, there's a part where it speaks about forgiveness three times. And so Peter is doubling it and adding one. And Jesus comes to him and says, no, 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 take your magnanimous number, Peter, multiply it by 10 and then add seven more. And then he goes on to tell this parable. And a major point of the parable is to highlight how different we are in our nature than God. And now, of course, yes, we are because we're made in God's image and his likeness. We are like him in many ways, but that's not the emphasis here. What's the main word here in this parable that describes our nature and its relationship to God is in verse 24, and it's kind of hard to see in English. It's this word where we read, he who owed him. But in Greek, it's much simpler. It's just a debtor. That's it. And fundamentally, that's what we are before God, even without sin or any moral failings. Because of our creation, out of nothingness, we owe God. We, we owe him everything, even the breath that we breathe, every breath we've ever taken. Guess how many breaths I've taken as a 48-year-old person? I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but 20,000 breaths per day, 7.5 million a year. I didn't do the math. I don't know if I could do that math, but that's part of the point. And here... Jesus says, this is something that you are before us. So how much is a breath worth? If you were charged for every breath that you were ever taken, how much would you pay? Those people who have ever choked before, they know how much a breath is worth. I've choked twice, had the Heimlich two different times. I promise you it's terrifying. And you would pay so very much in that moment for a breath. Or what about those of you who've sat with a dying person and listened to their last gasp for air? You know how precious each and every breath is. Or those of you who have had children and been in the, in the hospital when they've been born, you're just waiting, holding your breath, waiting to hear their cry, which is predicated upon their breath. Jake, our oldest son, was born in Alabama. And so you know this is going to be a negative story. And he was born in the East Alabama Medical Center, Word to the wise, never have a baby in a directional hospital. It wasn't even a hospital. It was the East Alabama Medical Center. Each one of those words is troubling in some way. And, and Jake's birth was an absolute mess. He was 10 days late, and they induced Alyssa's labor with enough drugs to make a horse high. And when Jake came out, there was no cry. There was no breath whatsoever. And the birth canal, the umbilical cord had wrapped around his neck. And so he came out choking. And I was young. Alyssa was high. We didn't know what was going on. And the, the doctors just took him and said, oh, he needs some O's. And I thought, okay, great. But he, mean, he needed oxygen. They had to bag our little baby and pump oxygen into his lungs in order that he might live, which he did. 
And I joke about the East Alabama Medical Center, but Dr. Golden and his nurses saved Jake's life because breathing isn't easy. Being alive in this world is not easy. It's not to be taken for granted. They're both gifts of God. And if we were ever asked to pay, it would be an utterly inconceivable amount, utterly unrepayable for even just our breaths. And that is Jesus's point in verse 24, when he says a debtor owed 10,000 talents. A talent was 20 years of wages for a laborer. Uh, One commentator said that's 100 million denarii. And a denarius being one day's wage, that's 2,739 years of work. And Jesus says that's what we paradigmatically owe God for our creation, for the very breaths that we breathe, for everything in our life, but also for the moral debt that we incur before God because of our sin, which is another emphasis of this parable, how morally corrupt each of us has the capacity to be apart from the grace of God. So this is a picture of us. It's a picture of what Christianity means when it speaks about fallen humanity and what our nature has become. And it's bad. It is absurdly bad in contrast to God's. Let's consider God's nature first, because that's what the parable does. It begins by mentioning the king's desire in verse 23. Do you see that? where it says that he wished or desired to settle accounts. He desired to remove any obstacles that were hindering or, or blocking or even damaging his relationship to his servants. Now, don't hear that or don't read that as some sort of angry or exacting desire, as if the king is banging on his throne, demanding that all the failures in his kingdom slunk before him in order that he might get his pound of flesh from them. That is not it at all. In fact, it's the very opposite. And we know that it's the opposite because of the contrast that's set up with the second half of the parable and the servant. Because there in verse 30, we read that this servant refused, but actually it's literally he did not wish. Exact same word. What the king wished to do, he did not wish to do. He desired to do the opposite. The servant wanted a pound of flesh, but not the king, not God. He desired not to punish for the sake of punishing. He desired to settle for the sake of making the relationship right. His ultimate desire was not for payment itself, but for the debtor himself. Which is why when the debtor comes before him and he can't pay, he says, have patience with me, verse 26. And the king does. The word patience there is an interesting word. Makra, which means long, and thumia, which means anger or or passion or even wrath. So be long angered with me. We don't really have an English word that fits it. We have the opposite. We say short-tempered, and and this is the opposite of that. And this is what God is like in his nature, in his character. It's like what we say at the beginning of the Eucharist each and every Sunday, that it is God's property to always have mercy. It is always God's desire to not give what we do deserve, which is why verse 27 goes on and speaks about pity. It's this word that means moved in the inward parts. It's also an emotional, emotive word that we might say knew in his gut or moved from the very core of his being or moved from his very heart. And that is what God is like, moved from the very depths of who he is to forgive. And how different we are than God in this. How twisted our own sin and the scars of other sins against us have made us because we don't innately desire to forgive. Again, not according to verse 30. It says refuse, but it's the same word as in verse 23. In fact, almost everything in these two sections of this parable are the very same. 
In both sections, the debtor comes and falls down before the one who's owed. And both ask, be long-tempered with me. But the servant whom God has been long-tempered doesn't desire. He doesn't want to be long-tempered with others because he's not like God in this. Something is wrong with him in his inward parts. Which is why I asked my original question for the sermon as I did, how can we forgive? And the honest and first answer is we can't. Not left to ourselves. Not apart from the grace and the kindness of God. And the further and further we move away from God, the less and less it's possible for us. Like the further and further you move away from the equator, the colder and colder it gets. That is what it's like with forgiveness and us and our proximity to God. And, and that's true individually of each and every one of us, but it's also true in all of our groups. In every, however it is that we gather, families or movements, whatever it may be, it's true. For example, how different was the civil rights movement in the 1960s than the various movements for racial and social justice today? How different? Very different. And why? Because the civil rights movement was led by and large by Christians who knew and believed in the long-tempered and forgiving nature of the God of the Bible. Martin Luther King Jr. in a sermon in the 1950s before the civil rights movement even really got going, he ended a sermon saying, here then is the Christian weapon against social evil. We are to go out with the spirit of forgiveness, heal the hurts, right the wrongs, and change society with forgiveness. There's nothing like that in the social and, and racial injustice movements of today. Because our culture has moved. It's further and further away from the very equator of God and his nature. And as we become increasingly secular, our social movements have become increasingly devoid of the spirit of forgiveness that Martin Luther King knew. People don't know how to forgive. In fact, if you listen to so many of the leaders, they will say it's not right to forgive, that they don't want to forgive, that they shouldn't forgive, which is why we have what we blithely called cancel culture today, where if someone commits a social or ethical sin, if they make one mistake, one misspoken word, especially in public, their, their career is over, their relationships are over, their life is over, it's canceled. Just think about it. Almost every social or political movement in our culture is far more like the second scene in this parable than the first, because this is what we are in our nature, left to ourselves apart from the grace of God, left to the twistedness of sin. We say we want justice. We say we want to set things right, but really what we want is a pound of flesh from the people we think are the wrongdoers. And so we overreact and overreach in our punishments, just like this servant. Do you notice here in verse 28, this fellow servant? And notice what he's called, a fellow servant. It's not the king to a servant, it's a fellow servant to another servant. So same station, there's, a, there's an emphasis upon a quality of station here. And this man owes this other servant 100 denarii, 100 days, is of, 100 days of wages. So three months of work, very repayable, small amount in comparison to 2,739 years of work. But this guy goes out and grabs the one who owns him and chokes him. Why? Because he didn't want to be paid back. He didn't want the money, which could have been paid back. He wanted to inflict pain on someone. In fact, he went out looking for it. As soon as he left the king's presence, verse 28 says, he went out and he found the one who owed him. He went out looking for him to exert his power on him and hurt him. And that is what Jesus says we are like. Left to ourselves in the twistedness of sin. 
It is divine nature to forgive. It is sinful human nature to choke. Or as Erasmo Levamaracacus put it, by nature, God is long-suffering and man is tyrannical. He goes on in his commentary. It gets more dire. He says, to him, the servant, the compulsive need for satisfaction, for exerting power over another is more important than the actual money involved. He uses the excuse of a debt, any debt, as the self-justifying cause for inflicting verbal carnage on his fellow servant. There is clearly no proportion between the violence of his assault and the smallness of the debt owed. Is that not us? Is that not us now culturally here in our culture, in our activism, in our politics, in our public discourse? Is this not our world and what we're watching unfold right now in the Middle East? It is. It's also us and our friendships, our relationships, our marriages, and our family, because this is the nature of sin within us. And so the first application of this line from the Lord's Prayer is to admit that, is to acknowledge that, and to first and foremost admit it of ourselves, that this is me left to myself apart from the grace of God. That is the nature we have to deal with. Secondly, the expectation, point two. God's expectation of those that he forgives. It's where the hope is. And it's clearly seen in verse 33. He says, should you not have had mercy on him as I had on you? It's also clearly seen in the Lord's prayer because as I've said in verses 14 and 15 there in chapter six, Jesus circles back and he connects God's forgiveness of us with our forgiveness of others. So the question is, how are they connected? It's a very important question. How are they connected? Because they can't be connected in some sort of strict tit for tat repayment sort of way. As though God is saying, the only, I'll only forgive you and your debt against me to the exact extent that you forgive others of their wrongs and their offenses and their sins against you. In other words, pay me back by not making others pay you back. That makes no sense. Can't be what he's saying. And it also would be God holding us to a standard and expectation that he doesn't hold for himself. And he never does that. And so how is God's forgiveness connected to our forgiveness? And it's like this. It's actually quite simple. And that is God's forgiveness, when truly received, it should restructure our hearts and change our very nature, making his forgiveness not something that we simply receive that comes to us but flows through us to others. And Jesus is saying the gospel can do that, that the gospel will do that. Many other things say that they will. Many other really good things and important things like therapy, psychotherapy, or even counseling. Most of what therapy and counseling do is to bring to surface what's hidden within your hearts in order for you to to then begin to deal with it. But so many people then don't move beyond the realm of, of therapy or counseling into what I would call is the necessary realm of religion in order to deal with what it surfaces. For example, there's a book published a long time ago, 1989, I was already, you know, several years old at that point, but it's by Becky Pippert. It's this, this book called Hope Has Its Reasons. It tells the story of her sitting in a, in a class at Harvard uh, in, in this class called Systems of Counseling. And they were looking at this case in which a therapist using this approach called psychodynamic psychotherapy helped a patient, significantly helped him, uncover all this hidden hostility towards his mother. And naming the problem seemed to really help the patient as though a great, a great weight had been lifted off. And then the professor immediately moved on to the next case and Becky Pippert raised her hand and said, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Let's say that the patient returned a few weeks later and said, I'm so relieved 
to understand what was bothering me. My mother did things that, that provoked my hostility, but now I want to move beyond my anger and I want to begin to love her and to forgive her. How do I do that? And the class was silent. The professor finally said, I think the therapist would say lots of luck with that. He went on to say it's accomplishing a great deal in life just to be able to uncover and to name the hidden things that drive us. But to ask that his hostility magically disappear isn't realistic. We have to learn, he would have to learn to live with it and hopefully not be driven by it. And there are all sorts of objections from the class. And finally, he said, if you guys are looking for a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong department. And friends, Jesus is telling us that hearts can be changed. In fact, it's his expectation. Verse 33, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Flip that and make the statement positive. You will have mercy. If and when you truly believe and receive my forgiveness, you will have mercy on others. In other words, it can't not. It can't not restructure your heart. Okay, then why wasn't this servant's heart changed? Because it wasn't. As one commentator put it, how can it be that the reception of God's infinite mercy turned this man into a homicidal monster? And the answer is he didn't receive it. Not truly. In fact, it seems as though he tried to use the king's kindness against himself. He probably walked out of there with contempt for the king, being so weak or so gullible as to not make him pay. He didn't see the beauty. He didn't see the wonder. He didn't see the majesty of the king's kindness to him. And he didn't understand this. He didn't understand what was going on. He didn't understand that to forgive is to absorb and that that's what was happening with him before the king, that forgiveness is absorption. Once a debt occurs, it just can't evaporate into the ether as if a relationship is gonna be set right and the world is truly gonna be set right and justice is gonna flow down like waters as the Old Testament prophets speak. If it's not... If that's going to happen, then every outstanding debt that has ever been committed has to have its payment. Everyone. You all know that we have a puppy. I told you about him a few weeks ago. His name is Bear, but I renamed him Thorn. Thorn in my flesh. It's a very biblical name. I've since re-renamed him Your Idea to remind Alyssa of why we have this dog. And let's say that we come over to your house with Your Idea, and he... And he pees on, I think that name's going to stick. We, we bring him over and he pees on your very expensive rug and he runs it. What do you do? You have two options. You can have justice without forgiveness or you can have justice with forgiveness. Justice without forgiveness would be us buying you new, a new rug and it would remove the debt and he would set all things right, including the relationship. Or the other option is that you opt for forgiveness and you say, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. No, no, no big thing. But it is a big thing because now you don't have a rug and that rug really tied the room together like in the big Lebowski. And, and so in this scenario, who pays? In the forgiveness scenario, you pay. And that's forgiveness. It is not making others pay for the wrongs done to you by them. It's to absorb the cost of it. And that happens every time you forgive. Even in the smallest of scenarios, someone says something unkind to you and you don't inflict the same amount of pain and hurt that they inflicted upon you. You don't say back to them something along the lines of what they said to you. You don't slander them back for slandering. You are saying something unkind when they say something unkind to you. And then when you have the opportunity to say something nice or kind or to help or to serve them in some way, you do. And it hurts. 
because you're the only one bearing the weight and the cost of the wrong that they previously committed to you. It's like every wrong done in this world is a weight that grows and expands with every sin and with every wrong done. It just grows and grows and we pass it around. And we say, you take it. And you say, no, you take this. And then you say, no, you take this. We pass it around until it crushes everyone who's involved. Is that not what we see happening now in our culture? Is that not what we see happening now in the world over, the Middle East included? Because there's no gospel of absorption of another's debt involved there to change people's hearts. Only forgiveness changes hearts. Strict justice without forgiveness, it only hardens hearts. Speaking of the Middle East, you've probably seen the pictures from the Libyan flood, or maybe you haven't. We've kind of forgotten about it. It happened several months ago, 9-11. The storm, Daniel, made the dams break there near the city of Derma, and Derma was basically washed away with little to no warning. 12,000 people are confirmed dead. 9,000 people are still missing. And what the water did to Derma looks like what the bombs are doing there in Palestine. Entire sections of the city are just gone. Concrete buildings reduced to rubble. Cars look like tin cans because a wall of water as tall as the ceiling in here washed through this city. And, And this water was filled with trees and with mud and with concrete and rebar just shearing off everything and everyone in its path. There was no stopping it whatsoever. And friends, that's just a dim reflection, just a slight reflection of what was bearing down on Jesus on the cross. The thumia of God, the anger, the just anger against our sin. God was not long suffering with him in that moment on the cross. And he bore it, he absorbed it, took it so that he could be long-tempered and forgiving to us, such as his infinite and unimaginable love for us and his desire to do so, his desire to forgive, his desire for you. Because justice has been established and forgiveness with it has been made available, not simply by balancing the scales of justice, but doing so in order, in a way that actually changes hearts. And so if you are a Christian, that's you. But not only that, it's not just God's forgiveness that has been granted to you, but also his very nature. It's not just that he has given you his forgiveness through Jesus. He has united you to Jesus in and through faith and by your baptism. And so his makrothumia, his long-tempered nature and his desire to forgive, it lives in you, lives in you. And so how can you forgive? You draw on the very nature of God of which you have become a partaker. You deny and you resist all the fallen nature and the power of sin which still possesses in us and you draw on the nature of God and God's grace which lives in you, has come to you and now flows through you. As Christians, we absorbed because we can. By God's grace and presence in our life, we can. And in order to do so, we have to remember the order, the very order of the Lord's Prayer which begins with God and we get, begins with his praise, beginning with his praise, who he is, his kindness, his grace, his long suffering with us. It changes everything else that ever might flow from our mouths, even speaking about our own sin or other sin. If you simply begin with your sin and you just go to God and confess your sin without dwelling upon the goodness and the kindness of God, confessing your sins to God will crush you. But if you begin with his praise and who he is, it will unburden you. And then you move from forgive us our debts to forgive us 
help us to forgive us of our debtors. Because in that phrase, there is a plea, help me, help me forgive others of their small debts towards me in the same way that you have forgiven me of my incalculable debt to you. Help me. There is a plea within that line. And I promise you, he will. He never calls us to pray things that he will not answer. He will help you forgive. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would be a forgiving people because we would be a people of faith, a people who know you in and through your son, a people who are united to your son, a people whose very life and spirit is bound up with your spirit. And so thank you for our time this morning in worship. Bless us and keep us as we continue on. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.